Welcome to the Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university students, post-secondary students, and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. So glad you're here. Hey, this is Daniel. I'll be taking over the podcast from Phil, who's been the genius behind the conversions for the last few years. This week, we're going to be exploring a spirituality of eating, and how this could potentially transform our view, relationship, and love of food. Bon appétit! Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> uh, man, good crowd. I should leave more often. This is... Uh... So nice to see everybody. Um, a few people said, hey, they look like odds. So this is uh, almost the family. Our oldest daughter is not here, but my wife, many, most of you know Marissa, and this is Shiloh. Um, I'm using her phone to record the message, which doubles as a, you now can't look at um, Snapchat during, during this talk. So it's a great strategy for the future for you. No, I'm kidding. Uh, and that's Spencer. Wave man. And uh, it's so great to see so many of you. And uh, this is our last convergence before we move to Tennessee, which is hard to believe. And um, tonight I am keeping with the topic which we chose way back in the summer, which is a spirituality of eating. And this seems strangely appropriate uh, because one of the first things that I did almost five years ago, having no idea what to do on campus, <laughs> was gather a small uh, group weekly, one semester, for something we called Food, Faith, and Justice. And we would get together, and we would cook, and we would uh, talk about the theology of food. And actually, this, I got to know Danny really well there. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but Daniel and Vincent used to hang back and like do dishes, which was a massive blessing. Um, so I didn't have to do all of them by myself. Um, I got to know Logan there uh, as well. Kind of um, I, my my memories with Logan are less uh, dishes and more the daunting task of setting up a, the sound equipment <laughs> at every convergence before we were here, uh, which was always felt like hours long and always questionable as to whether it was going to work or not. Um, and so, of course, outside of the different programs which we did, uh, many of us would gather together and we would meet over coffee or tea or a meal because somehow food brings us together, doesn't it? Um, Leonard Sweet said this once. He said, as we sit and eat together, we don't just pass food around. Fellow diners pass bits of themselves back and forth as well, exchanging tales as well as condiments. And so tonight, one more time, we'll talk about food, and then, I think, we'll eat. 
Um, the other day I was listening to a podcast that Bob uh, turned me on to, and, and the host, Russell Moore, he was talking about how certain books grab you at just kind of the right moment of your life. Um, and he mentioned that Wendell Berry, a famous author, had once said to him, isn't it funny how we meet just the right person at just the right time and we read just the right book at just the right time? Now, years ago, I read a book which I suppose... Uh, was one of those books that I read, it seemed like, at just the right time, which was a book called Food and Faith, A Theology of Eating by Norman Weresba. And Norman Weresba, he's a scholar uh, at Duke, but he's actually from Southern Alberta. I think he's from, um, from Lethbridge. And his book helped me theologically in general, but in particular helped me to think deeper about food and about land and about creation. You know, I often quote Dallas Willard, uh, who said these, just these few words, which have always stuck with me. He said, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. He says, actually, before it breeds contempt, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Oftentimes, the things that we are most familiar with are the things that we ignore the most because they are like just there. You know what I mean? And this is why um, we decided this year to talk about dailiness and to talk about kind of a spirituality of the ordinary, because there is a temptation for us to try to obtain spirituality by like climbing the highest mountain that we can find and finding God up there somewhere, right? Instead, God actually most of the time is trying to get us to pay attention to the things that are right in front of us, maybe even right on our plates, in order to meet God and to meet our neighbor and to meet the stranger there. Uh, as Christians, it's important to remember that our story, the story that we share uh, with the Jews, starts in a garden, right? And so here is the first command that was given to human creatures in the garden. And the Lord God commanded the, it says man, but really it's the first human. The man didn't become a man until later on for another day. Uh, the Lord commanded the human, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. In Hebrew, actually, the word eat is um, repeated twice. We talked about this way back in Food, Faith, and Justice. So you could, it could be translated, um, eat, eat, or surely eat, or freely eat. Perhaps it's also important for us to remember that while that is the first command given uh, at the beginning of the Bible, if you go all the way to the end of the Bible, the very last words that God speaks, just before Jesus says, yes, or behold, I am coming soon, are these words. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let all those who hear say, come, and let all who are thirsty come. And let all who wish to take the free gift of water of life. And so the Bible actually starts by telling people to eat freely, and then it ends by telling people to freely drink. And what about in between those bookends? Well, in between, it's like food everywhere in the Bible. Again, it's be we're so familiar with this that, that we miss it a lot of the time. But, I mean, the Old Testament, or the First Testament, has detailed instructions on how to handle food. 
And so we get incredible verses. I actually love this verse. We have incredible verses like this in Leviticus. It says, season all your grain offerings with salt to remind you of God's eternal covenant. Never forget to add salt to your grain offerings. <laughs> Stunning, right? A while back, I saw a quote by Julie Canlis. Um, um, Brad Jersak was quoting her on Twitter. And, and she said this, there is not a single chapter in Luke that doesn't mention a meal or feeding. I love that. Isn't that, a, isn't that astounding? Not a single chapter in the book of Luke that doesn't uh, mention a meal or a feeding. And so food is everywhere in the Bible. Uh, Leonard Sweet, one more time, he, he said this, that someone had once said to him that the first testament could be summed up in these three sentences. They tried to kill us. We survived. Let's eat. <laughs> and then they said, I can do the New Testament too. I can do the New Testament. And in the New Testament it said this, I love you. I forgive you. Let's eat. But of course, by the third chapter of the Bible, <laughs> by the third chapter in Genesis, things begin to go sideways, don't they? And, and they go sideways precisely because of food. Uh, there was this one tree that God told the humans not to eat from. And actually, the whole of human history was held in the balance, according to Genesis, by how the humans would decide to handle food and decide to handle creation. And astonishingly, the same thing uh, is actually true in our own time. We still don't know how to properly handle food, and we still don't know how to properly handle land and the rest of creation, and our planet is actually hanging in the balance like it was in Genesis 3. And so in Genesis, uh, the whole world was presented to the human creatures as this like buffet but God instructs them rather simply, right? Um, there's one tree. Don't eat from this one tree or you'll die. I often refer to this as like the cake or death. Marissa and I used to listen to this comedian and he would, you know, talk through history. Like, you know, people had a choice, but it wasn't really a choice. Like, do you want cake or would you prefer death? And this, this seemed to be the choice that God was giving people. But being like human creatures, we said, we'll take death, please. Um, but the question Actually, which many people ask, even children ask, and it's a deeply important question, is why? Why would God tell them not to eat from the, that one tree? Why, in fact, would God place that tree there to begin with? And there are a lot of different theories about this. You can hear people talk about freedom when they talk about this. But um, I've become convinced that how we answer that question is actually massively important. Because how we tell our stories determines our lives, and vice versa, actually. How we live, live our lives determines how we tell our stories. And this story in Genesis 3 about, the, about this tree and this eating, which we shouldn't have done, uh, is a foundational story for us. Now, I recently started uh, a book that my wife gave me uh, and then began to read almost immediately after and has been bugging me ever since. Why haven't you read this book yet? Uh, called Braiding Sweetgrass. How many of anybody read or heard of this book? Stunning book uh, by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And in this book, she, um, she brilliantly weaves indigenous wisdom and scientific knowledge together. And I highly recommend it. Um, Kimmerer begins her book by telling this story called Sky Woman Falling. And 
Actually, when I picked this book up to read it, I had just read this tale. This is kind of a foundational tale uh, with uh, our indigenous sisters and brothers that they tell. So I just finished reading um, the same story, but told slightly differently by an indigenous theologian named Randy Woodley. And so in this story, I'll, I'll simply highlight a few parts, um, which I guess shows that I continue to teach like a, a white guy. But anyway, um, you know, as they saw this, this woman, it, it started off like a, a speck of dust falling from the sky, almost like a speck of light uh, falling down. And as the story goes, there was this woman and she was a pregnant woman and she was falling from the sky. And as of yet, there, there was no land and there was uh, no humans here. And so these geese saw this woman falling. And so to help protect her, they put their wings out and they caught the woman and they brought her down uh, to the water. But she was heavy and they couldn't, they realized they couldn't hold her for long. And so all the creatures were trying to figure out what to do to help this woman. And so uh, creature after creature began to dive down because they heard there was mud at the very bottom of the water. And they believed that they could create, uh, that land would be created if they could get the mud. And so many creatures tried to go down, but they couldn't, uh, they couldn't get it because they ran out of breath. Some died trying. Uh, and depending on who you hear this story from, uh, it, it depends on which creature brought the mud up. Um, but in Kimmerer's telling, it was a muskrat dove down, gave its life, but then they found within the hand of the muskrat this mud. And she had been resting on the turtle shell, and so they put the mud on the turtle shell, and the woman began to sing with gratitude. And so uh, across the land, all of a sudden, the, the land began to spring forth. And the woman didn't come empty-handed. She came with seeds and she came with branches and with berries. And so the land, because of this, began to prosper. And so you have this uh, kind of beautiful story of, of this woman. And the mud expanded and became uh, Turtle Island, or what we would call the earth. Um, it's a fascinating story. It's an instructive story, I think. Um, but toward the end of her telling of it, Kimmerer juxtaposes this story of Sky Woman with the story of Eve, and she says this. Like creation stories everywhere, cosmologies are a source of identity and orientation to the world. They tell us who we are. We are inevitably shaped by them, the stories, no matter how distant they may be from our consciousness. And now she tells, talks about the two stories, the story of Sky Woman and the story of Eve. One story leads to the generous embrace of the living world and the other to banishment. One woman is our ancestral gardener, a co-creator of the good green world that would become the home of her descendants. The other was an exile just passing through an alien uh, world on a rough road to her real home in heaven. And she says this, and then they meet the offspring of Sky Woman and the children of Eve, and the land around us bears the scar of that meeting, the echoes of our stories. They say that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, and I can only imagine the conversation between Eve and Sky Woman. Sister, you got the short end of the stick. Now, 
I tell this story not to try to set one up against the other or to try to correct Kimmerer, but actually to agree with her by saying that our stories and how we tell our stories matter. Many Christians think of Eve as the inevitable outcome of what God kind of had planned all along. It's almost as if she couldn't have not eaten from that tree. And that's just how the story was supposed to play out. Uh, the tree was there because we needed choice or, you know, however we tell that. But I just, I wonder about that. And I think, what if there are other ways of reading the story of Eve? What if that one tree was not some kind of cosmic temptation to prove that we were weak or, or whatever? What if it was there as a reminder that while God feeds us out of the earth's abundance, the earth does not belong to us. It is ours to receive. It is ours to enjoy. But it is not ours to own. And there's a word for this, actually. And the word is usufruct, which totally sounds like a bad word, right? Like, what did he just say? Usufruct. Here's the definition of usufruct, okay? The right to enjoy the use and advantages of another's property short of the destruction or waste of his substance. Which, for the record, we're doing a really terrible job with <laughs> What if that tree was there to teach us that we must approach the world not as owners and not as takers, but as grateful receivers? And what if each of us and each meal that we eat is meant to remind us of this too, that true spirituality is about learning how to receive instead of take? When it comes to food, this is actually really hard for us to get because we live in a time that we are unbelievably familiar with food and therefore almost completely and totally unfamiliar with food. Um, it's an amazing thing that we, unlike most humans in all of human history, we can eat food from all over the world. We can eat mangoes in January in Alberta, like it's minus 30 and we're eating mangoes in our living rooms, okay? This is not how things have always been. Um, you know, like we know what chicken curry is, but we, we know that it's chicken and we know that there's coconut milk and we know that there's some spices in that from um, Eastern Asia. But aside from that, we are actually completely in the dark about that meal. We have no clue where the chicken uh, that we are eating was raised. We have no, con no clue what the conditions that the chicken's life was, was in and how it was raised. We have no idea how the coconut milk got to us because it wasn't from Alberta. I mean, like in the grocery store, yes, but it didn't come from, it was from Alberta. Um, we have no idea who gathered the spices. We have no idea who bottled the spices. We have no idea, typically we order our food, right? And skip the dishes, comes to our door. We have no idea who cooked our food. Oftentimes we don't even know who delivered our food to us. And so the whole world is actually on our plate and many, many, many hands have worked to get it there and we rarely think about it. 
We've become completely unfamiliar with food because we're so familiar with food. So what would it mean to think about food differently, theologically even? And how could we become people who are overcome with gratitude by the gift of food that God gives us? Uh, One of the first things that we can say is that we exist in community. And food teaches us this. Now, when I say that, everybody will zone out, right? Because we're used to talking about community. We talked last semester about the spirituality of being together. And the short way of, shorthand way of talking about this is community. Um, and I do want to talk about community. And, and it's that type of community and the relationship of food to it in a moment. But I also want to say that there is another community that exists that the church has for too long neglected. And it's what Randy Woodley calls the community of creation. There is a kind of shallow spirituality which doesn't pay much attention really to the world around us, to the trees or the animals or the plants, to the rocks. And such a spirituality, if we find ourselves involved in a spirituality like that, um, such a spirituality is proud It causes us to be very prideful, but also incredibly weak. It makes us think too highly of ourselves as creatures instead of as stewards, as receivers, and we neglect the ways that God uses the rest of creation to form us. Uh, Wearsbow reminds us, though, that whenever people come to the table, they demonstrate with unmistakable evidence that their stomachs of the, the evidence of their stomachs, that they are not self-subsisting gods. They are finite and mortal creatures depending on God's many good gifts, sunlight, photosynthesis, decomposition, soil, fertility, water, bees and butterflies, chicken, sheep, cows, gardeners, farmers, cooks, strangers and friends. The list goes on and on. Eating reminds us that we participate in a grace-saturated world, a a blessed creation worthy of attention, care, and celebration. Pride is one of the great enemies of, of true spirituality. And the more obsessed we are with control, with limitlessness, and with immortality, the smaller our souls become, and the less room there is for the God who desires to expand our souls. But fast for a week (laughs) or even a few days and see what what it does to your pride. You fast for even just a few days, see what it does to your pride and see what it does to how you encounter food. Um, Those of you who have ever gone on an extended fast and you've come back, you know, they tell you um, the first thing, like don't go have steak. Right. Typically, you'll start with like a soup broth or something. And here's the thing. Soup broth never tastes better than when you have come off a fast for for several days. Right. Um, It's just you're like, oh, I've taken this for granted. This tastes so amazing. We are frail creatures. And the truth is that we are literally kept alive by other creatures and we cannot exist without them. We forget this, but God has given us other creatures. We often think of animals, but the plants as well, which we literally take into ourselves, into our bodies, 
in order to live. And we cannot live, think about this, we cannot live without other creatures dying. And just to stress this, this is not just animals. Um, I have a friend who was an, an organic farmer, and he said, you know, like, people can't hear the carrot crying when you're pulling it out of the ground. And he was, you know, people normally laugh at that. But that, that carrot will nourish us. It is a living thing. Things die so that we can live. Shouldn't this cause us to leave the dinner table with incredible humility and gratitude? And if this were not enough, that we are sustained by other creatures giving themselves for us, God sustains us through these creatures in a way that tastes incredible. <laughs> Seriously, don't you sometimes want to like shout hallelujah after just like the best meal that you've, that you've had? Right? So we are, we are both kept alive by other creatures and we are given the immense pleasure of eating and tasting uh, all at the same time. What kind of God? What is, what is God like that God would keep us alive in such an amazing and beautiful way? How astonishing is the community of which we are a part? So eating then is grace and should cause us to live in a certain way in the world in a posture of allowing God to expand our souls even as our palates are expanded. So, I also want to say, though, as we think about this, about taking other creatures into our, into our very selves, um, this actually challenges the way that many of us think about knowledge, too. We have been trained to think that we are mainly thinking things. You're at university, most of you, right? I mean, this is what we do. We are, we are primarily thinking things who come to knowledge through information, but there is a much deeper kind of knowledge, actually, which eating can teach us. Uh, Angel Mendez Montoya, in his book, The Theology of Food, writes this. Tasting through eating and drinking is a sensuously rich experience that literally requires taking the object, taking the food, taking the drink into our mouth and body. The sense of taste gives an account of knowledge as something savorable. <laughs> Have you ever thought of knowledge as savory? Knowledge is something savorable, so that to know something means to some extent to have a taste of it, to feel and touch and enter into a relationship with it. We don't simply understand other creatures by studying them. I mean, we, we do that too, of course, but literally by taking them into our, our very being and by being nourished by them and formed by them. This savorable knowledge, this is savorable knowledge. And how does the psalmist tell us to know of God's goodness? The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. N.T. Wright says this about Jesus. He said, uh, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. Think about how we are 
coming at the knowledge of God, coming to taste and see that the Lord is good. This is my body, which is given for you. Take any. This is the new covenant in my blood. Let us drink together. We say this when we gather often for communion. And so this is actually the deep knowledge of God. We taste and see that God is good. So what does that have to do with the community of creation? So Pope Benedict said this. He said, in bread and wine that we bring to the altar, all of creation is taken up by Christ the Redeemer to be transformed and presented to the Father. (laughs) This is stunning stuff. All of creation at, at the communion table is taken up by Jesus into the very life of the Trinity. So we come to know God not primarily through our minds. We do know God through our minds. We talked about study. But there is a much more deep and mysterious and strange way that we encounter God through the savorable knowledge. I agree with Frederick Buechner then who says this, even if the priest is a fraud... <laughs> The bread, a tasteless wafer, the wine, not wine at all, but temperance, grape juice. The one who comes to this outlandish meal, he's talking about the communion table, in faith may find something there to feed his or her deepest hunger, a new life to bring them alive. And so somehow, one of the deepest ways that we actually come to know God is through food. Right? I, this, is, this sounds shocking, but it's, but it's actually true. This is a savorable knowledge of God. And I think it tells us not only something about what God is like, but it tells us something about what we humans are like. That ultimately we are hungry people. Montoya Mendez again says this, Humans are hungry beings, for without eating we die of starvation. But hunger is also a reflection of ethics and politics, for it involves power relations and the sharing or lack of sharing of God's gifts. The table of the Lord, the place where all of creation is taken up into the very life of God in order to nourish us, is meant to transform how we see our own tables. And how we see food. And in case all of this at this point for some of you seems like way up in the cloud somewhere. Let me simply say it like this. Giving a meal to someone is a profoundly spiritual act. Seriously. Giving a meal to someone is a profoundly spiritual act. Logan, when you were your team sit and share meals with people experiencing homelessness. You are engaged in profound spiritual ministry, whether anybody ever says a prayer or anything, uh, you are involved in profound spirituality in the act of sitting with these people and eating with them. And in fact, to feed them is to feed Jesus. And Jesus taught us this. (laughs) Um, in a sense, it's because of a meal that we're moving to Tennessee. I know that this sounds strange, but um, it was Christmas Eve probably somewhere around a decade ago. And uh, we had some people at our church in Georgia 
who had moved there from California recently, and Marissa got talking with them and, and um, said, what are you doing tomorrow? They didn't have really many plans for Christmas. And so Marissa said, come have Christmas with us. And so they came over and they became just incredible friends of ours. And over the Christmas break, I had uh, someone from Tennessee saying, I, I want to know when that meal was. When was that? When was that Christmas dinner? How long ago? Because they believed that that meal was the very genesis of God leading us to be there now. That was the foundational moment where God began leading us there, even though we had no clues, as we began to share a meal that Christmas day. I listened to a podcast uh, a number of years ago by Malcolm Gladwell, and he talked about one of the greatest lawyers, uh, greatest civil rights lawyers or lawyers, period, a guy named Donald L. Hallowell. If, uh, you know, we lived in Atlanta, you'd drive, you'd, you'd see highways named after this guy. Uh, well, a guy named Vernon Jordan was working for Hallowell during a, a famous case uh, about Willie Nash. And this is at a time when young black men were being falsely accused and imprisoned and killed. And so these were civil rights lawyers. And so Jordan, he was, he was young and working with this great lawyer. And he remembers how he and Hallowell would watch the white lawyers leave the case that they were working on, and they would walk across the street along with other people who happened to be involved in the case in some way, and they would go over to a restaurant. Um, but these great civil rights lawyers could not go to the restaurant because it was a whites-only establishment. And so what they did, they went to the store, and they would buy a bologna, and they would buy Coca-Cola. And on Monday, they had a bologna sandwich that they made, and they ate it on the steps of the court, you know, in front of the court. And they drank the Coca-Cola. And on Tuesday, uh, they did the same thing. But on Wednesday, there was a black lady that came up to them. And she said, we've been watching y'all. That's how we talk in the South. Okay? Uh, we've been watching y'all eat those bologna sandwiches. Just have a Coca-Cola today. And come to our house when court ends for lunch. And Vernon Jordan says this about their, their arrival. They go through their day of court on Wednesday. I mean, difficult stuff. And, and I quote him here. He said, we walked in and the table was set for royalty. Her best linens, her best china, her best crystal. The aroma of this southern food was almost crippling. And her neighbors had come and put on nice sundresses and their husbands had cleaned up and they welcomed us. And then we joined hands and her husband gave the grace and he said this unforgettable sentence, which was, Lord, way down here in Tattanaw County, we can't join the NAACP. But thanks to your bountiful blessings, we can feed the NAACP lawyers. Jordan, he was just a very young man. He was witnessing other young men being put to death for crimes they didn't commit. Uh, he was absolutely traumatized by it. He said he, he witnessed such things. He walked out, he said, I was a grown man in a new suit. And I walked out of the courtroom once and just, he said, I wet my pants. 
He said, as a grown man, but I was so traumatized by what I was, what I was witnessing. But more than 50 years after this happened, he remembered when some people in Tattnall County, <laughs> in what Gladwell called a moment of grace and quiet rebellion, set a table for him and for his mentor. And that meal was a profoundly spiritual act. Sometimes during the civil rights movement, people of different races, white people, black people, would come together. They would share meals together. They would break bread together. I just finished uh, an interesting book on race by a guy named Luke Powery. And he said this, during the times of segregation in the United States, the breaking of bread together by different racialized groups constituted a kind of lung where the breath of the spirit could breathe. It was a common breath, a ministry for the entire community in need, regardless of linguistic, ethnic, or economic variation. Giving food to someone is a profoundly spiritual act. And some of you might be looking, you know, you're trying to climb that mountain, figure out how God might be able to use you. You understand? Jesus said a cup of cold water in his name. To give a meal is, is a profoundly spiritual act. Uh, one of the most moving stories, I think, in, in Scripture is found in 1 Kings 19. Uh, the prophet Elijah was suicidal. And in his despair, he prayed for God to take his life. He just said, just, I'm, I'm all alone. Kill me. And after he prayed his prayer of despair, he laid under a tree and he, and he fell asleep. And look what the text says. I mean, this is just, I just find this such a moving passage of Scripture. So he's asleep, he's in despair. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and he drank and then he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. For the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And those words, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. I mean, what unbelievable words. The angel speaks to this prophet. And so, two things tonight. One is that there are many, many people who feel like the journey is too much for them. They are all around us. They are sitting with you in your classrooms. They are on the sea train. They are in the pews of our churches. There are so many people. This is, 
if anything, the university has opened my eyes to a lot of things and the privilege of being able to, to be here for the past almost five years. But this is one of the things that my eyes were open to at the university is that there are many people who say this journey is too much for me. Feed them. You don't have to have a profound theological sermon or teaching or self-help or, you know, all those things are great. Sometimes what people need is a simple meal. Do you want to come for coffee with me? Can we sit and have coffee together? Can I buy you a donut at Tim Hortons? That doesn't seem to us like a spiritual act. But when God's table begins to, when we realize that God, in God's goodness, takes up all of the things of creation at his table, and he transforms, God transforms our own tables, and we realize actually that is a deeply and profoundly spiritual act. And that meal, that coffee, that tea, might be the thing that transforms somebody's life. Uh, The second thing is that actually maybe someone in this room feels like the journey's too much for you. And in a moment, I'm going to invite you, we're going to receive communion together, the Eucharist, this meal of thanksgiving and grace. And my prayer for you tonight is that you would experience God there just as you would experience God at the table with other people as well. Um, God, God's self, has bread and wine to strengthen you for the journey ahead. When you find yourself saying, this is, I, I can't do it anymore, this is too much, this is too much. Come to the table of the Lord. And sit with others. Have a coffee. Have a meal. Because Jesus meets us there. You are loved. You are fed and strengthened by the very hand of Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Convergence Podcast. We hope this has whetted your appetite for all things pertaining to faith and food and stirred your imagination. Join us this week on Thursday, January 26th at 7 p.m. at Brentview Baptist Church for Convergence Conversations. See you there!